Hi, welcome to the How Not to Think podcast, the podcast that gets you thinking about your thinking on all sorts of subjects. I'm Dr. Howard Rankin, and today I'm delighted to have with me all the way from Massachusetts, Sophie Wadsworth. Sophie is somebody after my own heart in the sense that she is really into the power of communication and how to effectively do that. Um, we'll listen to her story and what she has to offer as we go along, but now I'll shut up. Uh, Sophie, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Howard. Great yeah. to be here. Yeah, great to have you. And uh, as always, uh, tell the audience a little bit about your trajectory, about how you get to be doing what you're doing today. Well, it all started with a doctor in New York City. <laughs> no, I won't go back that far. <laughs> oh, you were born in New York City, huh? I was. You know, I worked on a story recently about how um, in New York City, um, I really learned public speaking on a bus with boys. And I'll tell you what I was doing there. My sister and I, when we were eight and nine years old, played tackle football um, wow. with a team north of New York City on weekends. So that's what we did Saturday mornings as we suited up. It was the 1970s. And um, let's just say the boys were less than charming on the bus. And they weren't really sure about having these two um, tomboy girls. Um, and so I learned how to talk back to them. And my first speech coach was my mother. Um, so how she got us on this team and all of that is, is, a, is a longer story for another time. Um, and I'm joking, but really, that's how I built my confidence um, out of the gate was, how do you act like you have some presence when you feel inside like you're, you might be falling apart a little or you're just a, like a deer in the headlights, as they say. Um, mm -hmm. So in that case, she said, well, whatever they say to you, you just say it back louder and twice and and that'll work after for a while um so it's a pretty unconventional speech coach um approach and it went on from there um and you know we made it through a number of seasons um but i would say that the next place as a kid um where i really developed my love for you know being in front of people sharing a message was in musicals in school um and then Fast forward, it was really teaching. It was being up in front of people in a classroom. Um, and it was ninth graders to start. So tough crowd, again, um, I think mm -hmm. tough crowds are the best way to learn. Uh, you know, engaging a group of ninth graders um, on a Monday morning was probably, again, one of the real sort of boot camp experiences I had um, in my 20s. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I'll, I'll, I'll um, intervene here with a story of my own. I got into speaking. I was a, an exchange student in California from the UK. And where I was, there were several of us. There was one other girl, South African, who spoke English. But all the others, English was not their first language, although they did pretty well. But we would get invited to all these various groups to give talks. And um, we would let the people whose English was not their first language to go first. And then typically, you know, I and the South African girl would go last. 
And of course, we sounded great compared to people, you know, who one girl was from Thailand, one, one guy was from Sweden and what have you. So we sounded great. And that's how I learned um, some confidence in public speaking. And I, you know, I think those early experiences are very important. Certainly yours is more powerful than mine, but I can relate to it for sure. Mm. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. yeah. So you had that confidence about being in front of people and speaking and, and thinking about, and I think this is really the critical part, thinking about how you were going to communicate. Yeah. Because most people don't. I had a plan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you had a strategy. Mm -hmm. And most people don't, right? Mm -hmm. They think that logic somehow or their authority or a loud voice or something is going to actually convince the listener to do whatever they want them to do. Well, so, it's, you know, I'm, what I'm thinking about um, as you're saying that is I am perhaps in the minority being very comfortable with public speaking. And yet, you know, I too have my vulnerabilities and my blind spots. And one is at times um, as an executive leader um, in the nonprofit space, um, through circumstance and through, um, I think, oversight, I would sometimes wing it um, really more than I, I could have justified. Um, and you know, that too is, is failing the audience in a way because, you know, not having my points sort of worked out. And in one case, I remember having a prop. Um, mm -hmm. So this is, um, you know, another thing, I'll just say for now, I had a prop, I can, I can go into the story um, in more depth in a moment. Um, and I really hadn't synced up how I was going to use this prop and tell the story. I was, it was really like I was rehearsing in front of the audience. Um, you know, it was, it was only, you know, 400 people or so. And yet I, you know, owed it to each of them to have actually practiced and not been such a goof um, in front of them. Um, part of having confidence is they probably didn't see me as um, quite as unpracticed as I felt, you know, for right. what I knew I could do. So we've all got blind spots. That's for sure. I'm still working on that one. Um, how to, how to, um, you know, really prepare in the best ways for myself. You know, it's, I think a lifelong journey. And as well as giving talks, you now also consult with all sorts of organizations, people, companies in how to really make effective presentations. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, what's your experience been in working with them in terms of, you know, for, for us who's, who have these experiences, that would seem obvious and that it, it would seem crazy to us that you know a ceo or a major player in an organization or whatever doesn't have the same mindset or approach to thinking have you have you come across that where people where you're sort of shocked at the naivete of some people in this in this space well um certainly i've been intrigued let's say that and and engage with people who are working um, through challenges that, um, you know, aren't, aren't familiar to me or that I might not have expected from how they um, presented. You know, when people get real, um, I get a chance to hear what's really going on. And 
likewise, if the boys on the bus had ever had a chance um, in those days when I played tackle football to really know what was going through my head that I was like reminding myself of my strategy and trying to breathe and all of that, um, the, you know, the, the curtain would have been pulled back and they would have known that this, this little um, brassy nine-year-old really was going off a script too. Um, mm. So what I find is that a lot of um, people that I work with are brilliant in the ways they're brilliant um, and have a tremendous amount of knowledge about what they're speaking about. They care passionately about the work. They wanna make a difference um, and wanna lead their teams well and inspire their audiences. And they don't have you know as many tools as, as they might at this stage of the game. Um, and it's really just about opening up, you know, a, a toolkit that's bigger, you know, sort of adding in, um, you know, more stories, for instance, and finding ways for them also to handle what's on the inside. So uh, stories being the content and the material that's prepared and shared. And then the inside is the mindset and how do they work with the <laughs> that voice, it's like this little background, you know, earbud that's talking to them while they're talking. Mm -hmm. I find that's so interesting that we have this other track going in our head. Mm -hmm. um, oh, the audience looks bored or, oh, I didn't say that right. Or, oh, they're going to kill this idea um, or um, whatever it is um, yeah. uh, that's distracting. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And on that score, stand-up comedy is probably been the most stressful thing that I've ever done because that's going if you're not a professional which I'm not at that um that's exactly what happens you know you tell your joke that you thought was hilarious and nobody laughs mm -hmm. oh shoot you really got to be on the ball to let that go and not say oh my god I'm not going to laugh at this next thing and oh, oh let me get off stage now um you can't do that Howard, how did you get into stand-up huh you know i've done a lot of speaking and so and and so and i have you know, a sense of humor at times and so um you know that was almost kind of natural and i was in i was working with organizations not you know as a psychologist but you know that we'd have events and i would be invited to do a little stand-up so um <laughs> but, Very fun. But, it, but it is stressful because it mm. more than perhaps anything else because you've got in your head this is so funny they're gonna laugh and if they don't that smacks you in the head you know uh and it's probably an exaggerated more exaggerated reaction than if you're giving a more serious talk and you're not getting a response um yeah. so <laughs> it's good practice for well, speaking i'm so curious because you your talks um you know in, include many about um you know great intellectual content and research and giving us a deep dive in the brain and how um you know how we are working so neurologically really so i'm curious how your stand-up might have influenced how you give talks and how you know you use your skills in humor in those talks that are serious even if it's in a quiet way yeah and, that, and that's actually something i was going to discuss with you the role of humor in in presenting stories and so forth um Sometime early on in my career, um, I overdid it. You know, I would be giving a talk on stress management 
and afterwards, you know, people come up and say, Howard, that was so funny, but yeah, what did it have to do with stress management? So I realized, no, wait a minute, I'm going a bit over the top here. You know, we have to include the content. Um, but humor, I think, is very, very important. You know, when people laugh, um, it changes their neurochemistry, you know, they're going to get more attached, they're going to listen more, they're going to be more motivated. So making people laugh is, I think, important. But again, you've got to know what the boundaries of that are first, what the boundaries are in terms of what today you can say. <laughs> and, and, and secondly, how far you take it, you know. Um, so absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What about your you? What about your use of humor? Do you encourage? I guess it depends on the context and the person doing the presentation whether they can pull that off, right? It does. Um, yeah, most of all on the person and their comfort um, zone. And you know, some people have that stand-up DNA. They can slip in these jokes, and the audience will just roar. And others, um, you know, myself included, it's. Um, it's not as much right at the forefront, quick, lots of jokes, you know, everybody laughing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we know these people in meetings, just out of the blue, they'll <laughs> say things and everyone will be roaring and you're so glad they're there. So you mm -hmm. can have right. um, that texture in the meeting and that um, bonding that happens when you're all laughing. Um, so I would say knowing what, you know, your, um, your humor looks like and how to slip it in I mean, again, speaking from my own experience, I often make jokes in the moment. Um, they just come, things come to me that are funny. Uh, and that seems to work and people laugh. Uh, certainly I can script things. And I guess one, one idea I would share for people who are out there listening, how not to think is think ahead of time about something funny you think your audience will enjoy um, that you can share. And it doesn't have to be, you know, knee slapping hilarious. Um, it can be something that's just quirky or humorous. You know, I was thinking about your work, Howard, and um, how not to think. And it made me think of the writer Gertrude Stein and an anecdote I read about her going to write at a busy intersection in Paris where all the horns are honking and it's chaos. Um, and that, as she, I think said, took the top off her mind that amount of noise and chaos. So that could be told in a way that's sort of comic, right? You know, mm -hmm. here's this writer, this, you know, brilliant mm -hmm. um, person, um, you know, Gertrude Stein. And there she is with all the craziness of a Paris intersection um, or picture, mm. picture the worst one in, in Times Square. Um, so that's funny in a, in a quiet way. And even that will lighten things, just that image um, that's, that's quirky right. and eccentric and, and give variety. Um, so um, yeah, but whatever it might be, it could be a cartoon in a PowerPoint, or mm -hmm. it could be a joke that you can tell well, um, right. that's fitting, right? right? There's right. certainly jokes about accountants and lawyers and CEOs and everything. Yeah. Every industry has a joke, it has a set of jokes. <laughs> um, yeah, um, and, and being spontaneous, I think is, is fun too. I think of this where at one event, somebody introduced me. <clears throat> And then they say, you're going to love his British accent. And so I got up and I said, hi, y'all, how you doing? <laughs> Which got some laughs, you know, and got it, got it off going in the right foot, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. But um, yeah, 
you raised another very important point there, which was about planning and preparation. And where I go with that is public speaking is a performance, right? And we know that performance is best when you don't have to think about it. It's so well rehearsed that you're in the moment and it just flows. And, and in a way that goes back to what we were saying before, when you're reminded of it's not going well, then you start to think, and in some ways that's the worst thing you, you can do in a performance. So I'm sure you stress the importance of preparation and planning too, right? Uh, I do. And um, your comment, Howard, is making me think that I, among the things that I emphasize in the preparation is prepare for those moments when the audience doesn't react the way you expected, mm -hmm. or you get a curveball question, perhaps, if it's an interview or um, a pitch or something where there's a Q&A portion. Um, and how are you going to feel that? Um, and there's sort of different degrees, you know, <laughs> yellow alert, orange alert, red alert. Um, and um, I find that very um, helpful for myself and for the people that I coach is to say, well, in that moment, um, maybe that the joke falls flat, you know, how can you make light of the quiet in the room um, or say something actually about how you're feeling, which can bring you back into your body. Mm -hmm. I'm like, woo, is it, it's getting, it's getting hot in here. Um, so let's see if we can get it, get it a little um, warmer still, shall mm -hmm. we? You know? mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Um, but some line that's going to be comfortable. I just made that up. Um, no, no, the, no, you're spot, right. But, but some line that's going to speak to that moment. I love when a cell phone goes off or a siren goes by and someone can make a joke about it because you're all distracted. Like who just died? What's that mm -hmm. phone call about? Why didn't mm -hmm. they turn it off? So they kind of fold it in, right? Of yeah. and sometimes very deftly. Um, so yep. we're all laughing. Yep. Um, you know, there's. <laughs> There's President Biden now. Um, right, right. Do you need to take that? And then at least you just move past it and have a little laugh because um, it happens. No, I agree. And that that degree of sort of almost prepared spontaneity um, is very important. Again, it brings you closer to the listener and the audience. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, from my work on neuroscience and communication, that is that's really critical. You have to in most cases, you have to win people over, you know, they, you have to assume they're going to start off bored, right? So how do you get them out of that state? And there's, you know, lots of answers to that. But but that's what you have to do, you have to literally get their brain working, producing, you know, endorphins and dopamine and things that they're really engaged in. So then just like any education, if they're not engaged in it, eh, it's probably not going to be very effective, right? Yes. Yeah. Which, you know, as you've already alluded to, begins with yourself and how do you center yourself? And you do not have to start the moment that you've been introduced and the applause ends. You don't have to start speaking. Um, right. You can take, uh, you know, that moment, you know, you're there at the microphone and you can just take a breath and really take in the audience, even if they're on Zoom these days, sometimes they're on Zoom, take in the Hollywood squares mm -hmm. and take a breath. Sometimes that'll help folks take a breath with you. You know, um, I love something I read in neuropsychology about how 
um, mirroring works. And when someone else does something, there's a way in which uh, our brain is talking to our body. There's there's um, some messaging happening and it's sort of, um, we're actually experiencing it. So seeing someone take a good breath or um, smile or whatever, we're actually internalizing some of that ourselves. And then you have that moment where you become more present and maybe they too have come out of, they, the audience, come out of their internal conversation in that moment that you've given them, right? Yep. Um, so I, I often coach people to think about that moment is yours and, um, and certainly one of the most important um, moments in the, whole, in the whole talk is how you begin, how you come on the stage, whatever the shape of it. <laughs> yeah, you never get a second chance to make a first impression, right? Uh, yeah. In a way, How am I doing? Yeah. You're doing great. Um, but um, but that's true. Somebody says, "Oh, we're not going to not one of those speakers again." In the <laughs> yeah. first thirty seconds, you're going to have to work really hard to get them change that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the beginning actually is very important because that sets the mindset, really, or the brain set, if you want to call it that, um, of the audience, every member of the audience, and of course their influence each other the environment influences it you know Mm -hmm. so if nobody's laughing at that joke you're not going to laugh at it probably Mm -hmm. if everyone's laughing at it you're going to laugh at it Mm -hmm. so you know you have to be aware of that sort of group effect as well Mm -hmm. right yes that's why it's always good to have a few plants in the audience to 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 laugh and cheer and clap where's the laugh track howard yes why do we have laugh tracks right why do they have them for exactly that reason Mm -hmm. right yeah these shows wouldn't be anywhere near as funny without a laugh track Mm -hmm. right well you know what makes me think of is that like having dinner with friends. I mean, if there is someone whose laugh I love, I laugh about twice as much because I'm laughing at their laugh, you know? Right, right. Yeah, it's true. It's, um, it's really valuable that people in the audience who know how to really laugh and, um, you know, and are with you. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Or, you know, perhaps some recording, you know, of laughter that surreptitiously is played at the right moment by your sidekick. (laughs) Who's managing mm-hmm. it? Right? Um, I think you're onto something. I think I might be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you said, oh, someone that. was walking on a Zoom meeting. Someone was walking by in the hall. They're just cracking. Listen to them crack up. Joe, thanks for <laughs> laughing at my joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah, we'll have to talk about that afterwards. Yeah. yeah side yeah. gig. Yeah. Yeah. Laugh absolutely. Track. Yeah. Laugh track. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So preparation. I mean, I think first of all, is it seems to me planning. What is the message you're trying to? get across right what's the message how are you going to do that uh and that's important um you you may be familiar that i wrote a book called power talk the art of effective communication mm-hmm. <clears throat> a long time ago uh, i just brought out a second edition of it and what prompted me to do that was here i was you know well into a career in psychology and therapy and all of that. And no one had ever presented me anything on communication, which let's face it, if you're in therapy, that is a big part of what you're doing. And it was just stunning to me. So, you know, I've researched it and found out as much as I could and then put it into that book. 
um, which I think, you know, is helpful and is really the things we're talking about and, mm -hmm. uh, and the things you do. Um, and it just amazes me that communication itself, which is such a critical skill for everybody, I mean, not just in business, clearly it's important, but it's important for everybody, just isn't taught, you know. We say, oh, people should be, kids in school should be taught about money, yeah, probably, they should be taught about this, relationships, yeah, but they should also be taught how to communicate. Hmm. Yeah. Now, you said you, you I mean, well, obviously you're a coach, but you were a teacher at one point, as yeah. well as being a professional football player. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Communication in the classroom, that's an interesting one too. Mm -hmm. Were you thinking about communication when you were doing that? Or that still some way off <clears throat> in the future? Well, especially when I taught at the university level and helping young people figure out how to write an essay, which is also preparing for a job interview. Um, and you know, how to make their point, you know, um, <laughs> I love the expression, my point, and I do have one, um, <laughs> thinking, what is it that at the end of the, um, the answer to an interviewer's question, or at the end of, of an essay, you want the reader to really take away, what do you want them to feel? Um, you know, how do you want to move them? You want them to be furious and go out and do something? Or um, do you want them to be, um, you know, laughing and entertained? Um, and, and feeling the joy and the, and the human comedy or whatever it might be, um, you know, coming with that understanding of the outcome you're looking for, um, you know, in terms of people's inner feeling as a reaction, what they're thinking about in their mind, and then what they might, if all goes as best as possible, um, end up doing. So yes, um, and opportunities too for, um, people to just think on the fly, you know, that's part of the role play I do as a coach and did, um, you know, in the classroom is just putting out a question and asking them to just stand up and just answer it and get, get the thoughts organized on the fly. Because that's what sometimes is, is um, really the clincher for people is, well, okay, this is great. I've got the presentation in good order. I've prepared, I've practiced, it's in me. I have, you know, we've, videoed it and I have a good feeling it's going to go smoothly. And then that Q&A, how in the world do I prep for that? Um, the, the questions I can't anticipate um, and just have that mental presence, right? Of taking the breath, organizing your thoughts and thinking, how are you going to um, move through it? And, you know, one suggestion I make also is buy yourself some time. Um, you can ask the person to clarify the question. Um, if it's a really severe curveball and, mm, and maybe mm. with ill intent in some way or <laughs> feels like it's digging at you a bit, you can say, well, tell me more about why you say that or what, what, are, you, what are you really curious to know? I'm, I'm, um, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear so I can answer your question um, in the way that's most helpful. Um, and you figure out a way to say that with the right tone of voice while that <clears throat> reptilian part of your brain is kind of going nuts back there, like fight, right. flight, pick one, A or B. <laughs> Um, so yes, uh, I did, I did bring it in the classroom and I do with people. It's, it's challenging to think on our feet, um, when, mm -hmm. when all that stuff is going on, when you've got all those tracks running in your mind and, um, and be present and confident, but, and yet vulnerable at the same time yes. to say, I need a moment to think about that or 
That's a fascinating question. Let me answer it in two ways. And then maybe you've got the first one. You don't have the second one yet, but it's just some way of organizing your brain so that you can kind of breathe and um, take, sort of take possession of what you're about to say next. Right, right. Now, it's, it, it's certainly important, I think, to be as authentic and realistic as possible. And you, you don't need to stammer and um and ah. Um, you just need to respond appropriately to the question, like, uh, can you clarify, as you said, can you clarify that? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, I failed miserably at that one time. I was actually, the one time I was on The View talking about New Year's resolutions. And actually the, the drift of my talk was, you know, not sure it's worth making New Year's resolutions because the problem with something made on January 1st is January 2nd. So, you know, that was the drift of we were talking about it. And at the end, the host, and I forget who it was now, said to me, so what's your New Year's resolution? So what flashed through my mind is, should I say this or should I just say, well, physical exercise, which is an easy one. And I said, well, actually, I don't make New Year's resolutions, which was sort of in keeping with that. And then she said, oh, we get all the best guests on our show <laughs> as if, you know, here's this guy talking about New Year's resolution and he doesn't make them. Um, so I should have thought that through. <laughs> I thought I was making the right choice, but no, she screwed it for me. So, um, yeah, you never know. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it is important to to be realistic, to be authentic. And, and you know, that a lot of that also comes with experience too, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. You fall down enough times and then you, yeah, you figure out how to fall without hurting yourself. <laughs> right. Right. And actually sometimes making yourself fall for an effect mm. can work too, you know? Mm -hmm. So you work, you know, across all sorts of organizations and, and with people, and it's just just fascinating. We've talked about <clears throat> the importance of preparation and planning, uh, that somehow that gets you, the more prepared you are in any performance state, that gets you into what's called flow, where you're just doing your thing and you're not thinking about it. And if you do think about it, there down we go, as you would know from your days playing football. You know, you don't think about making that tackle, you just do it if you, right? So any, any performance is about flow, so that's about practice, that's about planning, that's about knowing how you, what you want to get and how you're going to achieve that. Mm -hmm. hmm. Are there, and I have reason for asking this, are there specific, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, specific uh, things that you're trying to create between the speaker and the audience that are important for that sort of identification? You know, what other things do you think that help identify, that, that help the listener identify with the speaker? Well, that's a really important question. What helps the listeners really connect with the speaker? And uh, one word I find helpful is relatability. 
considering as you prepare your material, who your audience is and how you can communicate with them in a way that's relatable. So I talk a lot about using story to illustrate the points you wanna to make to give color and life to the data you're sharing. And you have lots of choices in the story that you prepare or the stories and thinking, well, what's the story that's gonna really land with this audience that they'll relate to that isn't too um, sort of out there and extraordinary, isn't, isn't so eccentric that they'll get caught up in the unusualness of it, but rather is one that uses a metaphor um, that whether it's cooking or sports or something that's both true to you and will land well with the audience. Um, I find that one of the most helpful um, lenses to look through as, as um, I and the folks I coach prepare their talks um, because that helps people listen. They say, oh yeah, I get that, yeah. And they can run that through their, their mind and say, yeah, um, you know, we as a company are just cooking in too small a kitchen. The, the, the ingredients aren't good enough. There's not enough room. We're like in a ship's galley. We need a big commercial kitchen. Now, how are we going to get there? That's just off the cuff, mm -hmm. you know, a metaphor. Sure. And most of us can relate to cooking in, in different circumstances. So, um, <laughs> yeah, really thinking about that. And, um, and then what's true to you? Maybe there's some way you can also um, share something from your own life or a story you've heard. Um, so, yeah, I'm thinking of one anecdote that I shared when I was an executive leader um, that came from a friend who... Um, was in farming um, and said that one time the farmer um, late in the season, um, you know, when the harvest was starting to happen, um, the weeds were really out of control. And the farmer brought the crew together one morning um, and said, we've just gotten too far behind on weeding. And look over at those rows of broccoli there um, they were maybe a week or week and a half from, from harvest. And he said, what um, we're going to do today is plow those rows under. And the crew, <laughs> these youngsters <laughs> just looked with wide eyes, like, like as if you were saying to someone, now just plow all those $100 bills <laughs> into the ground. <laughs> and the farmer said, if we don't, we will lose much more. We have to make some hard choices here. And that broccoli will feed the soil, it's compost, it'll feed next year's crop. And as a leader, I could say, there are choices we need to make that are hard. And what is our broccoli? What do we need to let go of so we can take care of the rest of our harvest? And um, that was a metaphor that this group you know, could relate like to. to you know? yeah. Um, that we're in a place where, um, you know, farming is very much part of the community um, and nature and such. So that became a kind of a trope, a kind of a, a reference point as we went forward and became part of our vocabulary as an organization. And I, I'll never forget the day just a couple weeks later when a staff member said to me, as she was talking about overwhelm on a certain project um, and sort of sorting things through in her mind and figuring things out and said, yeah, that, that bit, that's broccoli, isn't it, Sophie? <laughs> and I said, yep. <laughs> 
So finding yeah. those analogies and metaphors, getting a sort of common vocabulary and being being relatable, whether again it's in a team meeting or you know in a keynote, is very powerful. It's very sticky to think of yeah. something like um, a crop being tilled under as a metaphor. And there's 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 two things about that that I think are important, and I would also relate this to writing nonfiction books. It's a combination of tell and show. It's got, you've got to have show. If you're just telling people, you're going to bore them. And, you know, you've got to engage them. And that's what the show does. That's what the story does. And then you've got to find the story that is going to be most engaging for most people. Right? And not everyone's going to get it. But that's what you have to do. And the underlying point of that is when you're writing a book, when you're giving a talk, it's not about you. It's about your listener. It's about your reader. And so it's very easy. Oh, I got all these great stories or I got all this great stuff or I'm the expert. Yeah. So what? How do you make that appealing so that somebody's actually going to not just listen, but engage with you? Mm -hmm. That's the key. Mm -hmm. uh, and so many people who approach nonfiction books just want to tell, tell, tell. And I tell them that's boring. Mm -hmm. It's not about how clever you are. Mm -hmm. um, it's about can you engage the reader? Can you make it about them so they can relate? If it's not me, mm -hmm. right? Well, so what do you do, Howard, when someone you're working with says, well, I just don't know how to do that. Um, you know, this is my material. This is what I've got. Like, how do I relate more to the reader? Um, yeah, so so what I always do is say we've got to come up with some stories. I'm sure you've had some experiences or know if people have, or we can even create them, you know, just to engage people, what we're talking about here. And actually, that is something that a lot of people in the nonfiction world have a great deal of difficulty with. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to do that mm -hmm. if they're not natural kind of storytellers. Um, and that's where I can guide them and say, okay, how about something like this? Um, and then we work it out. But I think that's very, very important. And it's, you know, exactly paralleling what we're talking about here in, in any communication, but certainly a talk, mm -hmm. you know, how do you get people to own it? That's mm -hmm. your first challenge. Mm -hmm. maybe your only challenge. I mean, obviously you've got to organize what you want them to own, but that's the biggest challenge, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, they could be doing the same presentation content wise to four different audiences, but the talk would be completely different for each of those audiences, depending on how to engage them. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That comes back to that concept of relatability is how, how do we choose the stories? How do we share them in a way that folks can relate to and really engage with, you know, use, use the vocabulary and use the analogies that are meaningful. Um, yep. Yeah. Yep. And how do we also go into um, our own material? You know, sometimes I work with folks who say, well, I don't want to talk about myself you know, um, that's just me, me, me. And, um, you know, I want to talk about the issues and, you know, what I have to talk about. And, um, 
you know, I help them understand and how important it is that they say some things about themselves and go into some of their own stories as part of the preparation and choose some material. And one nice bridge to that is paying attention to talks that we love. You know, I say, well, what are some of the speeches you remember? Or who are some of the speakers, the leaders, the business gurus um, who you love listening to and, and just you know, work backwards, starting mm -hmm. with the end in mind and say, well, how are they working their magic on you? Right. Um, you know, listen to a few of them. And are they saying anything personal? Are they being vulnerable in any way? Listen to where they're sharing some bit from their life. You know, yeah, <laughs> I remember no. a guy coming on a webinar and saying well, he was in Colorado, you know, fun, wild place. And he Come said, here. You know, this morning I noticed, uh, I've kept my eye on this little family of foxes. And this morning I noticed, <clears throat> you know, a little fox making its way across um, the grass. And, you know, we're all just hooked. Like, here's this guy just talking about these foxes in his yard. It was a great way to open um, right. from, you know, the, the texture of his life. And, um, you know, it was a webinar, so there was a chance for chat and foxes became, wouldn't you know it, a theme of the chat, you know, the baby foxes in the den, you know, like, yeah. it's irresistible. Um, I mean, I do think animals have that quality. Um, in general, stories about animals. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and so um, that was just this person being real. And it was very authentic. It was just really like what he had seen that morning. Um, and very endearing for an audience, um, very, absolutely. very human. Ultimately, we want to hear, you know, your humanity. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you can do, you can bring them from anywhere. It could be, you know, lines from movies, um, which I've used quite a lot. <clears throat> One of my favorite, probably the favorite line I have in a movie <clears throat> comes from the movie War Horse. And in that, um, there are an older couple who are out in the country and they're really struggling. They're, you know, they're about to be evicted from their farm. And the guy goes and buys a horse, which he absolutely cannot afford. And his wife, understandably, is really ticked off. And he said, oh, please don't hate me for this. And then she delivers the awesome line. I might hate you more, but it doesn't mean I love you less. Mm. Wow. Mm. Wow. How to escape the binary brain, mm. how to understand emotions in the moment. Just fantastic. Mm. Uh, I've used that in coaching and therapy to get across. That. And, you know, if I had tried to explain it, well, just because you're mad at the moment, it would not have been anything like that delivering that line sets it up for mm -hmm. further exploration and understanding mm. and you know that's those, so interesting i might hate you more but, but it doesn't, I it doesn't mean i love you less i love you less which is a place of great abundance right that is, mm -hmm. it's not a container with bounded lines it's something mm -hmm. fluid and um can yeah can absorb in a sense um that extra bit of frustration and oh, yeah. no, about yeah. the horse of just like that maddening um 
Yeah, that maddening decision. And yet, yeah, the rest is is still there. This and. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. Yep, absolutely. It's lovely. Yeah, it is. And yeah, it's a great line, as I said, I've used it a lot. And I think those things are important. Often in couples counseling, <clears throat> you know, and have a couple arguing about something and I get a box of tissues and I say, now you think these are tissues, but you think this is a box. Now you could spend the rest of your life arguing about that. And I think those, you know, that, that, that sort of thing is power. I think it's powerful communication and getting mm -hmm. people to see differently mm -hmm. what is going on. Mm -hmm. Put in their head something different. Mm. You know, from a coaching and therapy point of view, but, but also from a speaking point of view. People may go into a talk, decided they don't agree with you before they've even heard what you have to say. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it's good to imagine the skeptics in the audience, isn't it? And think how are you preparing your remarks for the skeptic, for yes. the one with crossed arms, the one who's there under duress, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> what, what might you leave them with? Um, how can you connect um, with them? How can you, uh, you know, so speak into their pain, into their, into their um, disconnection and yeah. pull them I a little closer. <laughs> and that is so relevant today, isn't it? In a divided yeah. world, that's a big challenge. You know, mm -hmm. how do you do that? You yeah. got to be really clever about it, and it depends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, clever and um, and human. I think the more human we are, um, the the more chance we have. You know, so from the get go, um, yeah, the more chance we have. I think of of recognizing there's so much more that we have in common than, than we have um, in opposition to each other. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So somebody- <clears throat> yeah, forget. Somebody is, you know, rude to you like that, you can say, um, well, I know you're stupid, but it doesn't mean I love you less. <laughs> No, you wouldn't say that. I yeah, think. you could just say, ouch. <laughs> <laughs> ouch. Big heart. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So uh, this is awesome. We got to do this again, really, because uh, it's, it's so important. And, and, you know, we've been talking about, and maybe this is a topic we come back and talk about, we've been talking about professional presentations and what have you, but then there's a whole other thing to talk about, which we just started on, which is interpersonal communication at a different level. Um, so, yeah, yeah we'll, let's do that again at some point. Okay, been great. Yeah. Sophie, tell I us... Like that. <laughs> tell us, tell the listeners where they can find you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Um, well, you can find me on my website, which is my name, Sophie Wadsworth. That's S-O-P-H-I-E Wadsworth.com. Um, and I'm out there on LinkedIn and Twitter. So uh, please do connect. I would love to chat about where you are in your journey as a speaker and a storyteller. Excellent. Well, I'll put those in the show notes. So if you missed that, you can look in the show notes. 
Uh, and well, thank you so much. As I said, we really could have gone on um, a lot longer and we will. Um, but good luck to you. And until um, we meet again, just keep doing what you're doing. Thanks, Howard. It was a pleasure.